that was the misconception 10 years ago when folks thought that there was islands of trash in the oceans. Not anymore. It's all about prevention. That's where the hard work is. And it's hard work. And we, and we need no more movement drift, but the movement to focus all of us, all hands on deck, to stop the flow of trash from land to sea. Why are plastic pieces so problematic when they end up in our oceans? How can focusing on preventative solutions to tackling plastic and microplastic pollution help us to more effectively address this global issue? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. To check out our limited 2019 Green Dreamer planners created to holistically support all that you do this year, just head to greendreamer.com. Your purchase will also support the planting of 50 trees and the continued production of Green Dreamer podcasts. So thank you so much if you get to find something that you love. More on this later, along with a discount code just for you. But for now, on to our episode. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is the co-founder and research director of Five Gyres Institute, which empowers action against the global health crisis of plastic pollution through science, education, and adventure. He's led expeditions around the world to research plastic marine pollution and co-published the first global estimate and discovery of plastic microbeads in the Great Lakes, which then actually led to the federal Microbead-Free Waters Act of 2015. He started Five Jars Institute with his wife, Anna Cummins, through an 88-day journey from California to Hawaii on the junk raft built from 15,000 plastic bottles. Safe to say he's a wealth of wisdom on how plastic pollution is impacting our ocean's health and what we need to do to most effectively tackle this issue for our health and the health of our planet. Green Dreamer starting off with what inspired his passion for nature. Here's Dr. Marcus Erickson. So my passion for nature, and it really goes back to a childhood growing up outside New Orleans in Louisiana, where I used to walk down the street from my house a couple miles to the levee hop over the levee and just catch snakes and turtles and alligators all day long. I, I mean, I recall when I was 15 years old having, you know, one baby alligator in my backyard. I had 11 snakes and aquariums. And uh, my mother let me build a pond and I had 96 turtles in that pond. And I just loved it. You know, I, I love animals. But I remember one very important lesson when I had that many animals I couldn't take care of them fast enough. I'd, I'd run home from school and I'd clean the water, clean the cages, feed them, go catch minnows. And I, I couldn't keep up and they were suffering. They were, they were dying and the big snapping turtles sitting on top of the small little green turtles, some were dying and I felt horrible. And that abundance of animals, very quickly I realized I wasn't treating them right. So I, I took one weekend, you know, a few weeks later and hauled them all back to the swamp. And that was sort of a defining moment for me and how we treat other life. And from there, when I was in, in, in high school, at the end of my years in high school, like most folks in blue collar Louisiana, you either got a job out of high school or you joined the military. And I found myself you know, in the Marine Corps infantry. And in 1991, I was activated for the, the Gulf War. That's when 
the United States went to Kuwait to liberate Kuwait from the invasion uh, from Iraq. Saddam Hussein had invaded the country. And I found myself there in that desert among all these burning oil wells, taking a hard look internally at what am I fighting for? Why am I here? And seeing this ecological destruction all around me, feeling horrible about it and thinking about the state of the world and my contribution to that destruction and the exploitation of fossil fuels, why would we go and defend this very rich country and a few years later, for example, do nothing in Rwanda when there was this massive genocide that happened. So I had a lot of questions about the world. My love of nature was there. And during that war, I remember sitting in a foxhole with another Marine from New Orleans. I remember we were sort of laughing. We were talking about if we survived the war, that we would build this raft, like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and raft the Mississippi River. 13 years later, I did it. I couldn't find him anywhere in the world, but I built my raft and I spent five months slowly floating down the Mississippi River. I had my love of nature with me. I had my sort of confusion about how we treat the planet from my experience in war. And then I saw this never ending trail of plastic leaving the Mississippi River out to sea. Mm. Then I found my calling. I just thought, you know, I've got to preserve and conserve the world around me. That's my duty. That's what's worth fighting for. And that was really the, the beginning of my career, you know, fighting the plastic plague. Mm. So it sounds like that really helped you put into perspective, like, what are what is humanity prioritizing in this world? Exactly. You know, if I think of how the world has changed in my, in my lifetime, I'm now 51 years old. When I was born in the late 60s, we were just over 4 billion people on the planet. Now we're pushing 8 billion. And, you know, the, the changes we've seen, the resource scarcity, the pollution, the overpopulation. I now have a six-year-old daughter. And if we don't fix this, her lifetime is going to see tremendous suffering and chaos and degradation of the world around her. That's unacceptable. So, I mean, this fight continues. So with your newfound passion in helping to address plastic pollution, you started Five Gyres Institute. For people who are not familiar, can you share briefly what the organization does and its mission? The Five Gyres Institute, I began with my, my wife, Anna Cummins. She and I, we met and within a few months found ourselves on the same research vessel in the middle of the, the North Pacific gyre between Hawaii and California studying plastics. What we also knew at that time was the issue was just beginning to, to catch fire. The world was paying attention, but there were unanswered questions about how much trash was in the oceans, where was the trash, what was it, and what was the impact? A lot of unknowns. So we began the Five Gyres Institute to study the five subtropical gyres in the ocean, these big, massive, circular currents where trash accumulates. There was, there was unknown information about those gyres. We began the Five Gyres Institute. We sailed around the world. We published research about plastics in the, in, in the environment, and we, we do some advocacy work as well. And that's what Five Gyres is, science to solutions. Mm. And we've been at it 10 years, and we're, we're seeing success. Success in terms of raising awareness through research? You know, I, I should clarify what, what success means. Success through collaboration, success through awareness, success through people, industry leaders, government leaders, families, you know, the young people, um, 
the directors of nonprofit organizations, all wanting to do the right thing and working together. One great example was when we found the plastic microbeads in the Great Lakes. Now, these are microbeads, small little particles of plastic that you commonly find in, in some facial scrubs and toothpastes. Mm -hmm. By the tens of thousands of microbeads in each tube of facial wash, we found them all over the surface waters in the Great Lakes. That's over so 50 gross. organizations. I know it, it was, <laughs> it, it really grossed us out. You know, 50 organizations came together. This is only a few years ago. And we worked hard. We had sample legislation. We had photos and videos and talking points. We had policymakers on board. So we had a couple state senators on board. We worked together and we won. President Obama signed the 2015 Microbeat Free Waters Act. National policy came from published research only two years before. That was what I mean by success. Through collaboration and goodwill, we worked hard and we won. So we're seeing ongoing wins and actions being taken to actually do something about this. Yes, yes. And I, I'm seeing that action. It's all the way up the, up the food chain. You know, right now I, I'm in Sydney, Australia. I just gave a talk to a, a conference about wastewater management and mitigation, how to get toxins out of aquatic systems. And I was talking about plastics. They all had heard of the issue. They knew about the issue and they wanted to hear more. They want to know what can we do about it. I've had a chance to work with uh, UNEP, United Nations Environmental Program, and there are high-level conversations, how do we stop the problem? And there are leaders in countries and companies who are asking, what is the plastic problem in my backyard, and how do I stop it? From there being almost no conversation 10 years ago, now we're seeing the world stepping up to the challenge. And I can tell you, I'm, I'm more optimistic now than I was a decade ago. I actually wanted to ask you because you're really at the forefront researching plastic pollution and constantly learning about how large scale and deep rooted this issue is in our modern day world. Do you ever feel frustrated or helpless about this current state? What frustrates me, I can tell you, is the, the distractions that exist. There's something called mission drift when organizations take on too many projects and they sort of drift away from their true calling or true mission. What I'm seeing now is a little bit of movement drift, and that is there are so many organizations, so much attention on this issue, almost everyone is focused on prevention, stopping trash from leaving our land and harming the ocean and wildlife. But there are still a few organizations that are focused on picking out little bits of plastic out of the ocean, and we try to tell them, look, let's focus upstream on prevention. It's the way we've solved most environmental issues, like the hole in the ozone layer 30 years ago in the 80s, or smog over our cities back in the 70s. There was 10 years of science that followed uh, the initial discoveries of those problems, and eventually everyone realized through good science, prevention is key. And that's where this issue is now plastic pollution. 10 years ago, the talk was about garbage patches and islands of trash, these fictional islands in the oceans of garbage. They don't exist. It, it's, a, it's more of a smog of small particles everywhere in our oceans. Mm. But the ocean is sinking and kicking it out if we focus on prevention. Mm. So you mentioned uh, water treatment systems earlier. Is there a way for us to build water treatment systems that actually filter out microplastic particles, even like the microplastic particles from our clothes, like polyester and nylon? Technically, yes, but it's so expensive, almost no one does it. There's one you know, treatment plant 
in Los Angeles, the, the Tillman treatment plant in the San Fernando Valley, they polish their water. They call it polishing when you clean your wastewater down to 10 microns. 10 microns is very, very small. You can't see 10 microns. 10 microns captures most fibers. That's expensive process, and most cities don't do it. In fact, in the Northeast United States, I was just in Cleveland, Ohio. They have a very old treatment system, like much of the, the Northeast United States, New York and, and all across that region, where when the rain falls heavily, they have what's, combined, what's called combined sewage overflow. They'll send the wastewater, raw, untreated sewage out with, with stormwater into the Great Lakes or oh. into the Hudson River. Yes, and I've trawled in those, in those rivers. In the East River in New York, I was trawling with my net, and I was pulling out tampon applicators and, uh. and cigar, <laughs> cigar tips. And the same I saw in the Cuyahoga River. I was kayaking the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, two weeks ago. Same thing. Things flush down toilets that do the combined sewage overflow. So you know, I guess the point is, is that every city is contributing some trash to our oceans. But I'm finding people in every city that care enough to want to do the research and work hard on the policy, on the product bans, ushering in the new products to end this plastic plague, to end this linear system where you know products flow through our hands, they get produced, they get consumed, they become waste, and they get burned or buried or washed out to sea. That's a linear e economic system. People are shifting to a circular system where we keep all the materials within a system of recovery, reuse, remanufacture. We design things to stay in a circular system. What we're witnessing now is that transition. You know, when I was a kid back in the early 70s and 80s, we were a linear system, a throwaway throw culture. And it, when I was a little kid, I used to collect glass bottles and get 10 cents a piece. Then they switched to plastic, plastic bags, plastic straws, plastic bottles. And it was all part of a linear, wasteful system. And you and I as taxpayers and cities were somehow manipulated to be responsible to manage and clean up all that trash. Now cities can't do it. Worldwide, we're seeing countries saying no more trash. In fact, one big shift that's affecting the United States is China stopped allowing the United States to export trash into China. It's called the National Sword. Where, the, where China said no more exporting trash from the U.S. to China. That's huge. That's causing recycle centers across the United States to say to, to us, to the people of the United States, we don't want most of your plastic anymore. We can't recycle it. Mm -hmm. And you know what, what most folks don't know is the majority of American trash was actually going to China just a couple of years ago. The majority. It's a big wake-up call where we have to figure out within the borders of our country, what do we do with all the single-use throwaway packaging and products that are part of this really messed up linear system? We can't burn it. We can't bury it. We can't let it wash out to sea. we got to shift that circular economy, make smarter stuff, use less stuff, use smarter packaging, things that are benign to the environment. Things that don't harm people or the planet. And that's a shift happening now. So I feel like a lot of people who 
recycle and they don't litter, they don't throw trash on the beaches. They might feel helpless in this situation because they feel like they're not doing anything wrong, but this global issue is still here. Where do we go from here? Like for people who feel like, oh, like I'm throwing my trash in the trash can. I'm not tossing anything out there into the lakes and stuff. What do we, how do we approach this conversation? I think how we approach it is, is we, we support the organizations working in our communities that are pushing for zero waste. Zero waste is the pathway to a circular economy. And there's a lot of that happening. There, there, are, there are a lot of cities that are, uh, for example, uh, banning the most polluting products, the straws, the styrofoam cups and plates, the plastic bags. We're seeing more and more cities in the U.S. not just banning a single product, but saying, look, the whole single-use throwaway concept has to go away. Like one, one city, Mount Pleasant in South Carolina, just banned straws, bags, and styrofoam all at one time. They said, look, these are the, these are the escape artists that, that are hard to clean up and capture. They got rid of them. And we're seeing a lot of people. I'm seeing more and more shops, for example, um, uh, allow you to buy in bulk or allow you to bring your own reusable containers uh, to restaurants for to-go wear. We're seeing more, for example, in Portland, there are more more coffee shops, different businesses that are actually sharing the same kind of cup. It's kind of like a cup reuse program that more and more uh, businesses are sharing and to go to go boxes to go where. So I'm, I'm seeing the circular economic system sort of coming into into play. Mm. Um, but I would tell the individual, you know, what you can do today, there's there's optimism there. One thing you can do is is just start with your own home. Zero waste your your home, your school, your office. And that means looking at the kinds of products you buy and realize you're not just buying the product, you're buying the packaging also. And just find the ways, support the businesses that think the way you do, that don't want excess packaging, that, that give you a discount if you bring your own bag or bottle or cup. Those do exist. It's up to us as citizens to help those, those companies, those businesses scale their activities and replace the more polluting systems. And to help us understand what the problem is with plastic being in a linear system, can you walk us through what happens to plastic if it ends up in landfills? What happens to plastic if it ends up in our oceans and breaks down into microplastics? Like, what's the issue with having plastic just be disposed of? So I would say that the issue of plastics is is the harm that it causes. Now, there is is harm to other living things, other living systems, by plastics that are lost to the environment. Sunlight makes them fragment into smaller pieces, and those pieces become toxic. They're absorbing pesticides. Plastic is like a magnet. It absorbs pesticides. It absorbs PCBs, PAHs, other industrial chemicals, flame retardants, all stick to plastics in high concentrations. And when animals consume those, we're discovering that the stomach of, uh, of, of other life can pull those toxins off of plastic and store it in their bodies. Mm. So there is harm through ingestion. There's harm from entanglement in ropes and lines, derelict fishing gear. Um, but there's also there's economic harm from the amount of trash that you and I as taxpayers. I mean, landfills aren't free. Incinerators aren't free, and they're polluting. So managing waste, more and more cities don't want to bear the cost of having to pick up, transport, and manage landfills or incinerators. It's just, it's not working for much of the world from an economic 
sense, from a human health sense, from a toxicological sense. So those are some of the harms that come from, from plastics. And the way this happens, and if you think of where we use plastic in the world, I mean, as I'm talking to you, my computer has a lot of plastic in it, but this is what's called a durable good. Car bumpers and technologies, durable goods are not as polluting as consumer goods are, single-use plastics especially. Then you got plastics that are in, in textiles. Those refining can be highly polluting because once they shed microfibers, they're lost in the environment. And a lot of research happening right now is looking at how microfibers might harm other living things. Then there's uh, plastics that's in fishing gear. And that can be the most, some of the most harmful sources of plastics in the environment as fishing gear entangles other marine life or shreds in the microplastics that can cause harm. So it depends on the kind of plastic. The most harm is coming from single-use plastics and lost fishing gear. That's the majority of the harm. So when we think about you know, where we can, can have the, the, the most positive effect, one is creating a circular economy around fishing gear. So one thing we support are companies that are leasing fishing nets, for example, rather than selling them and doing away with, with the fishing net once you sell it. But uh, through a lease economy, the company always owns the net. They own the polymer, the plastic polymer, and then they lease it as a net until it gets returned for the deposit. Those systems work beautifully. For single-use plastics, the other big source of harm, it's ending uh, the utility of, of plastic in that single-use uh, system. Maybe it's going to, to paper, which has its own problems as well. Even better, go to reusables. Reusable straws or no straw, or straws by request. Reusable bottles and coffee mugs rather than single-use throwaway things. Reusable bags rather than single-use plastic bags. So we're seeing a lot of ways to stop the harm from lost fishing gear and single-use plastics. With durable goods, like you mentioned, it's not as big of an issue. But with items that are more uh, disposable, we really have to rethink the ways that we design and make them in the first place. Exactly. It's that single-use throwaway culture that we, we all grew up in in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And that we're seeing, you know, I travel to cities around the world. I'm here in Sydney and like any other any other, other big city, there's a mountain of a landfill nearby. In Florida, I have family there. When I go visit them, the biggest thing on the horizon is a local landfill. There's a massive one outside Fort Lauderdale, outside Miami, and up and down the freeway, you see these big hills. So, you know, cities are having to deal with massive amounts of trash from the single-use throwaway culture. Mm. And that's what we have to have to end. And that's where, you know, citizens can get involved. Support the policies that end the single-use plastic culture. Support the businesses that are, are bringing the alternative to market. When you buy something, you're not just buying the product, you're buying the packaging. And go for something that's reusable, that's not going to harm the environment. That's the way we're going to shift this ship. So when we first went towards this linear product life cycle and adopted this at a global level, why do you think it was that nobody could predict that this is what's going to happen? Because we didn't have the proper infrastructures in place as this scaled. Well, I think that there was a, 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 public, a public trust that you know, our government and companies are not going to do something that's going to, to harm us in the long run. And, and you know, I would also think that companies and our community leaders didn't know. I take that back. 
<laughs> I take that back because I'm thinking of when I was a kid in the 1970s and 80s. Some of your, your listeners might know the, the crying Indian campaigns. In the United States, there was this commercial uh, that was produced by a group called Keep America Beautiful. And in that, in that commercial, what you see is a Native American sitting on a horseback looking at a highway and a plastic bag tumbles by and he sheds one tear. And the, the tagline is, verbatim, people cause pollution. Mm. And that, that ad campaign, the reason for the ad campaign was to put the, the responsibility for, for plastic pollution on the consumer. Not the design of the product, but the behavior of the consumer. What I argue is that both are responsible. That that effort also put the responsibility on the burden of the taxpayer to pay for waste management to pick up all the trash, but also it, it pushed any criticism away from looking at the designer products. That was intentional. So uh, I wouldn't say industry didn't know. I would say industry was protecting itself by putting responsibility for waste onto the, uh, the backs of the public and our, our municipalities. That has been a, a campaign that's been, been going on. That narrative of you and I and taxpayers having to clean up trash and, and not litter and not look at industry and design, design of stuff has been a common narrative, but that is shifting. That is shifting now in a huge way. There is a, a global movement called Break Free from Plastic. It's a way of organizing all the world's nonprofit organizations, government leaders, business leaders around a new narrative. And the new narrative is sharing the burden of responsibility with the corporations that make the most polluting stuff. And one way that this is, is happening is through brand audits that follow beach cleanups. So for example, we just had International Coastal Cleanup Day last month. What we saw for the first time was over, I think over 50, over 50 countries are participating in brand audits, which means they do the, 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 the beach cleanup where they identify, you know, straws and bottles and bags and other kinds of waste, but they add a layer of data that identifies the brand when it's available. And that information is making brands pay attention because mm -hmm. they see a risk to their name when, when suddenly the, the narrative shifts and people are talking about, hey, that little, that green straw that's on beaches everywhere, that's that coffee company, right? And all of a sudden, Starbucks. you've got a lot of attention. Yeah, you got a lot of attention looking at, at Starbucks. So that's the new narrative. It's sharing responsibility across the board. Of course, people should not litter. And of course, cities need to put garbage cans in, and manage waste better. But we've got to put responsibility also in the hands of industry to make smarter stuff and not fight systems that or, or fight people that want to have them make better, better stuff. Mm. That's where we are now. That narrative is shifting. Because I feel like within the sustainability space, everyone who's really passionate about this, we're all trying to do our best as individual consumers to go zero waste. But depending on our accessibility and where we are, that can be really difficult and frustrating. So it's important for us to also know that we all have to work together. It's consumers, it's businesses, it's governments. We have to all collaborate on this together. Yes, yes. And, that, and I, would, I would argue that a lot of the changes are not going to come from the top down. 
a lot of are from the bottoms up, from the grassroots. There's a lot of power in the people to sort of scale what people are already doing. I can't tell you how many people in my neighborhood have backyard gardens. I mean, I see, I see little old ladies pushing carts to the grocery store all the time and not taking plastic bags. My grandmother did that her entire life. She grew up in the 1930s in the Great Depression, and that ethic kind of sat with her. You don't throw stuff away. You don't create waste. So there's a lot of wisdom that comes from the grassroots, scaling things you already know. And at the end of the day, businesses make money off of consumers, so they also have to listen to what consumers want. That is true. But the, the onus of, of change isn't only on the consumer to drive companies to change. Companies more and more, uh, thanks to social media, are under, are under the scrutiny of the public and of themselves. You see more, more companies you know, branding themselves around their own ethos about who they want to be as a company. And, and those companies, the ones that don't want to, to be seen as wasteful or they just don't want to be that way, are beginning to shift away from the single-use throwaway products. And, and what we're seeing is more and more companies embracing that circular economy where they become zero waste, not just in their office, but in their products also. And zero waste, uh, I should clarify, clarify what a circular economy and zero waste uh, lifestyle looks like. It's, it's using materials that either fit a biological cycle where they're benign to the environment, they're, they're going to realistically biodegrade like an apple peel, I mean an apple core banana peel, or they fit a technical cycle where there's a system to recover it and get it back. A technical cycle might look like a, a bottle bill where your plastic bottle, your glass bottle is worth you know, five or ten cents. There's an incentive to bring it back. Or if not, then it's a, a paper bag or a reusable bag that, that doesn't have a lasting harm that a plastic bag would have. So that's what a circular economy and a zero-waste system looks like. And I got to tell you, I feel more optimistic as I see more and more of those, uh, those alternatives come online. So if we as individuals wanted to make the biggest impact, uh, what are some simple things you'd recommend that we do? Zero waste your grocery list. Take a hard look at your grocery list. Next time you go to the store and you buy a whole bunch of groceries, you got to think to yourself, am I, uh, I'm, I'm not just buying the product. I'm not just buying the peanut butter. I'm buying the jar it comes in. Mm. Is there a glass jar? Uh, is there with a metal lid? Or is there a place where I can bring my own jar and have them crush peanuts right there? Many co-ops are popping up in cities across the country. So I think one is a zero waste your grocery list. Zero waste your school. I can't tell you how many times I've gone and give a presentation at a school, and I love going to classrooms, and I'll sit with the students, I'll go to the cafeteria with them, and they're eating on a styrofoam tray. And they're getting a little plastic, little skinny bag with a, a fork inside, a plastic fork, mm. a plastic straw, and they get two little plastic cups on their styrofoam tray, one for coleslaw, one for fruit cocktail, and I'm thinking, this is the real curriculum these students are learning. It's a hidden curriculum of the school culture just teaching them a throwaway lifestyle. So you zero waste your school. Go to your school and tell your school principal why are these students using this plastic trash every single day in the cafeteria? And I can tell you, here's here's moving for optimism. I'm seeing it happen. I'm seeing more and more schools switch to compostable trays, bring back the kitchen where they're washing trays and washing utensils. Of course, there are some some offsets. There's still a footprint to to water usage and energy. 
but it's less it's less of a of a footprint than than trash makes. So again, zero wasting your your own home and your grocery list, zero wasting your school, and then zero waste your office. Does your office use water bottles or is there a water cooler? Do you have water fountains? Um, is there a culture of of zero wasting the use of paper? Have you gone digital? There are so many ways to go zero waste. At the end of the day or the end of the week, when you when you roll your garbage can out to the curb, is it half empty? Or is it so empty that you're bringing your trash to the curb once a month? That's a challenge you can make for your family. Can we reduce our waste to almost nothing? And you feel good about yourself and how you live in the world when you accomplish that. Well, we look forward to learning more from you. Um, what's next for you and Five Gyres Institute that we can look forward to and support? Well, what the Five Gyres Institute is doing now is something called a trash blitz. And it's not only doing our ocean, uh, our ocean research, but doing it more close to shore within the boundaries of the city and then working with the city to do a trash blitz on land to understand what is the kinds of plastic trash, where is it, how abundant is it, and what type of trash it is on a city's streets, in a city's rivers, on their beaches, um, in their lakes, and in the nearshore ocean. And we give that city a report card, here's your plastic footprint, and we work with local NGOs to give them a prescription for change. That's what's next for Five Gyres, working on land to save our seas. And where can we go to continually follow you and Five Gyres online and on social media? FiveGyres.org. That's a number five, G-Y-R-E-S.org. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're, we're there. But please come to our website. If you want to get involved, become an ambassador. And we'll give you tools to do your own trash, but in your own city. So yeah, come check us out. Before we go into our final five, I wanted to give you a discount code in case you're interested in our 2019 Green Dreamer planners. They feature our major Earth Awareness Days, 101 self-care reminders, gratitude lists, weekly simple suggested actions to take and cross off, minimalist weekly and monthly planning pages, extra bullet journal pages for customization, and more. And again, each planner contributes to the planting of 50 trees through international nonprofit Eden Reforestation Projects. If this sounds like it'd be helpful to you and you want to support Reforestation and Green Dreamer Podcast, just head to greendreamer.com slash planners to see our six beautiful designs and use the code greendreamer for 10% off. Again, that's greendreamer.com com slash planners and discount code green dreamer for now on to our final five let's power through what's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow you know i follow is the post carbon institute what do you tell yourself to stay inspired never give up i've been it for the long haul what's one thing you do for your health either daily or weekly i walk and i do yoga What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? Run my bike when I can. Uh, what makes you most hopeful for our planet right now? My six-year-old daughter constantly tells me how the world should be. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Never give up. There are millions of us and there is a, a greener world ahead. Never give up because there is a greener world ahead. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable takeaways from this interview, as well as the show notes with links and resources at greendreamer.com slash 103 for episode 103. 
You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page, and you can find me on Instagram at Kamea Shane, and also on our new account at Green Dreamer Podcast. I also want to take this quick moment to thank our reviewer of the week, Twilight Three Exclamation Mark. They said, "I'm so happy I found this podcast. It's so insightful and always finds the positive in what people are doing for the environment. I look forward to each episode and try to listen as soon as they post." End quote. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to have you and look forward to continually learning more with you. If you'd also like to support Green Dreamer by leaving a review of what you're enjoying, make sure to also leave your social media username, business name, or name of the passion project you're working on, or maybe your website URL so I can potentially give you a shout out and we can all check your workout. But for now, as we're wrapping up, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.